Well, good morning, church. Good morning. D, thank you for the kind words. It's so good to see you and be with you again. Tyson, thank you for the uh, invitation to preach this morning and, and tonight at the, at the men's meeting. And uh, thank you all for allowing me to be here. You know, I know what it's like to get a guest speaker. I mean, you know, I, I know you're probably sitting there thinking, I'd much rather hear Tyson or I'd much rather hear D. So it reminds me of the, of the three guys, a deacon, an elder, and a, and a preacher all went deer hunting on a Saturday morning and they got all set and uh, uh, deer comes crashing through, big buck. They all stand up at the same time, all fire synonymously, the deer drops, and then the argument began, whose slug was it that felled the deer? About that time, a Game warden comes by and they said, warden, we need your help. You, you got to go over there and tell us which one of the, the slugs took the deer down. And he said, well, I can't do that. And they said, well, go over and try because we sure don't know. <laughs> so he walks over to the deer, takes a look. Ten seconds later, hollers back, says, it was the preacher slug. So the elder and the deacon are up in arms. How can you tell so quickly? And he said, oh, that's easy. He said, the bullet went in one ear and out the other. So when you have a guest speaker, it's easy to let, let it go in one ear and out the other. But I hope this morning that uh, you'll walk away with just a few things to chew on and to think about that you didn't have when you came in. And I love this theme that you're in right now. Can I ask that? Because it, there are so many questions that we have with regard to our faith and what's going on in our lives that, boy, wouldn't it be an opportunity if we could speak with God and have those answers immediately. And, and this morning, we're going to ask the question, how do we know that God exists. April the 12th, 1961, Yuri Gagarin, Soviet cosmonaut, became the first man to orbit the earth. When he returned, he said, I didn't see any God out there. The late Carl Sagan, astronomer, wrote, the cosmos is all that ever is or ever was or ever will be. He made no provision for the possibility of God. More recently, biologist Richard Dawkins, author of The God Delusion, shared this view. The factual premise of religion, the God hypothesis, is untenable. God almost certainly does not exist. Now, some of you this morning may even find yourself in the Sagan-Dawkins camp. Others of you in here this morning may be convinced beyond all shadow of a doubt that God exists. Is it possible to know one way or the other? Now, I'm not going to be able to prove to you this morning. Nobody can prove to you that there is a God. By the same token, nobody can prove to you that there isn't a God. So how do we know that God exists? It is a critical question and one that deserves an honest and accurate answer. And it certainly cannot be thoroughly addressed in a single 90-minute sermon this morning. <laughs> Just wanted to see if you were still listening, all right? But perhaps I can give you something to whet your appetite that will give you something to chew on. They will give you something to study harder and dig deeper on. First of all, I want you to know that I'm really not interested in a hand-me-down faith. Or certainly not a blind faith, as we use the term. Or a buy a spiritual lottery ticket and hope for the best kind of faith. If there is evidence for the existence of God, I want to know what it is. Too much is at stake for guesswork. Eternal life hangs in the balance with the answer to this question. 
Now, have you ever seen this bumper sticker before? The Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. If you are a true believer, that may be sufficient for you. But bumper sticker theology is offensive to those who are genuinely searching. If you're seeking the truth about God, chances are you have major questions about the Bible. And so when somebody simply says, well, the Bible tells me everything I need to know, therefore that settles the issue, that is not going to work with an unbeliever. By the same token, if an unbeliever asks, if I ask an unbeliever why he rejected God and his answer is, Richard Dawkins said it, I believe it, and that settles it, that would be offensive to me. And it would lack credibility. Am I suggesting that we shouldn't use the scripture in our search for God and truth? Well, certainly not. But the Bible cannot be our sole or even main resource when we are defending our faith to somebody who doesn't believe the Bible to begin with. So what are the evidences around us? If someone handed me a copy of the Quran or the writings of Confucius or the Hindu Sanskrit Vedas and said, here, read this. It'll just answer all your questions and it will tell you what is true. I certainly wouldn't be convinced. To the contrary, I would feel a little offended at that. And I would want evidence, empirical truth, in order to support such claims as they just made. So let me ask you, have you ever struggled with doubt? Now, you don't have to raise your hands this morning because I'm going to tell you that if any of us says no, we're, we're not being totally honest. I think all of us have had questions. All of us have had doubts. All of us have unanswered things that plague our minds. Because you see, disbelief is nothing new. It's been around since the serpent planted doubt in the mind of Eve when he posed this question right there in the garden. Did God really say you must not eat of this tree? You will not surely die. And right there, at the beginning of time, in the Garden of Eden, doubt took root and has been binding its way into the hearts and minds of humanity ever since. And those today who don't believe or sometimes don't want to believe will level their charges of absurdity at those of us who do believe. Someone will say to you, you don't really believe the Bible, do you? I mean, after all, everybody knows it's full of lies and contradictions and myths, and then they'll go on to, to throw out one that you may not be aware of. They may tell you something like this. Well, 1 Samuel 17.50 says that David killed Goliath. But 2 Samuel 21.19 says that Elhanan killed Goliath, which is right. Now, most of us probably didn't realize both of those verses existed in Scripture. So now we're in a panic. I didn't know they were in there. Oh, my goodness, they do contradict. Oh, my goodness, what if he's right and I'm wrong? What if the Bible is full of inconsistencies and myths? How can I trust it for my eternal life? See how doubt begins to vine its way into your heart and mind? And it's true we get panicky when something like that happens. And it's true. There are some pretty tough places in the Bible. But inconsistencies? Eh, I'm not so sure about that. Now, let me see if I can answer this question about the two Goliaths with this. I read in a reliable historical resource that Abraham Lincoln was killed by a member of the Shawnee tribe... And in the same resource, it said that Abraham Lincoln was killed by John Wilkes Booth. So which one is right? 
Well, they both are. You say, really? John Wilkes Booth was a Shawnee? No, John Wilkes Booth was not a Shawnee. There's two Abraham Lincolns. One was grandfather to the Abraham Lincoln you know as the 16th president of the United States. And suddenly what seems to be an inconsistency has a very simple answer. So it is with Goliath. If you know the history of 1 Samuel, David was a young man at that point in time. If you know 2 Samuel, you'll know that David is an old man by the time 2 Samuel deals with history. So this two Goliaths were, I think, two different men. Both of them shared the same name. We do that a lot in our society. Both of them uh, were killed. That is true. One was killed by David when he was a young man. One was killed by another warrior when he was an old man. This could have been a guy that was a relative of Goliath. It could have been a guy who was just named after a hero like we oftentimes do. There's a simple explanation for so many of these that people throw up as major blockways to believing in God. But I do get it this morning. I really do. When things contradict our logic or defy our five senses, we struggle to believe. Let me see if I can, well, define what I'm talking about here. If I told you this morning that I am going to knock this pan out from under that tube and drop that egg into this glass of water, how many of you have doubts? Yeah, well, that's, that's what a guest speaker would expect the response to be. So <laughs> he was here for first service. So you ready for this? Do you remember that story in Matthew where Jesus is walking on the water? And uh, it's been a long night. There's been a storm on the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples are off in the boat, and they're scared to death because they they haven't seen uh, any sight of anybody, and Jesus comes walking. They're, They're frightened about what it might be. And when they realize it's Jesus, he says, do not be afraid, it is I. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, let me come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And so Peter climbs down out of the boat, walks across the water to Jesus, and everything is going wonderfully until Peter takes his eyes off the Lord, begins to watch the sky and the storm, and then he begins to sink in the waters. And Jesus extends his hand, pulls him out of the waves, and then says in verse 31 of chapter 14, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Why doubt? Because walking on water is something impossible. It defies logic and understanding. What I've often wondered is, was that comment directed at Peter? Because Peter's only one of two men I know that's ever walked on the surface of the water. Or was that directed at the 12, or the 11 now, cowards who were still in the boat? Either way, it's an important question because it reminds us that doubt is a powerful human response to the things we think can't happen. So I think we we need to deal for a couple minutes with misconceptions of doubt. Here's the first one. Doubt is the opposite of faith. If you have doubt, you don't have faith. That's not true. Disbelief, unbelief, is the opposite of faith. In the Bible, unbelief is the willful refusal to accept the facts or a deliberate decision to disobey God. That's not doubt. Doubt is indecisiveness. It's finding yourself stuck somewhere between certainty and uncertainty. It means you've got questions about your faith or you've got questions about God. As a matter of fact, You can have a strong faith and still have unsettling questions or theological concerns. Can I be a Christian without having all of my questions answered? 
I certainly hope so. I have questions that I don't have answered yet. Do you? Here's the second misconception. Doubt is unforgivable. God doesn't condemn us when we raise spiritual questions. When Jesus got back in the boat, he didn't say, well, I am bummed. I got to get rid of you 12 and find 12 more because I just can't forgive your, your doubt. He didn't say that. Jesus didn't denounce the disciples for their lack of faith. He just asked them the question, why? Why did you doubt? It was a question designed to challenge their understanding of who he was. We, on the other hand, are prone to hold doubt against somebody else. But Jesus didn't because doubt is not unforgivable. Here's the third. Doubt is always unhealthy. Actually, doubt can produce positive results in our lives. If we're dealing with doubt, questions, and concerns, and we're being honest and genuinely seeking God's answers, we can come out on the other side of that doubt stronger than ever. So at times, doubt might be an advantage to us if we handle it appropriately. So those are some of the misconceptions of doubt. So, you think I can do it? The egg in the cup? I appreciate your faith. Just because something seems impossible or to defy logic doesn't make it not true. Just something defies our five senses doesn't make it untrue. Did you get too wet, D? No, I'm fine. Okay, all right. <laughs> See, this morning, I, I just want to give you some things that will bring you out on the other side of maybe some of your questions with a reason to be even stronger in your faith in God. So let me ask you some questions this morning. If there is no God, how do we explain our internal standard of morality that points to an objective moral truth? In other words, how is it that we have something that we call a moral conscience? If we are the random collection of cells that mutated randomly through the theory of evolution, how is it that we have come with some kind of a moral conscience. There is no logical explanation if we are just here accidentally. However, there is something inherent within each of us to rebel at immoral and egregious behavior. Do we not feel revulsion at the cruelty of terrorists who behead innocent captives or school shooters who randomly take the lives of innocent school children? Are the wretched adults who ruin young women's lives by forcing them into the sex trafficking business? When we read about Adolf Hitler's final solution and his efforts to exterminate the Jewish people in World War II, are we not appalled at such depravity? Believers and non-believers alike are outraged at that behavior. But if there's no God... Why are we outraged? Where would any sense of moral behavior come? Where would any sense of right or wrong come? You may even find someone who claims that they don't believe in right or wrong. 
You try cheating that person or stealing from that person, and they'll squeal like a stuck pig about, that's not fair. That's not right. Why? Because we have this inherent understanding of morality. Random mutations cannot accomplish that. But a loving, moral, law-giving God can. And I believe that God knit that moral conscience into the fabric of our being. Because nothing else makes sense. Here's another question. If there is no God, how do we explain the precision of the universe? I am intrigued by the understatements in Scripture. You know, there, are, there are some passages that just <laughs> leave you wanting more. In, in uh, the Genesis chapter 1, it describes the fourth day of creation. And God is described as having created the sun for the day and the moon for the night. And then in verse 16, it simply states, he also made the stars. Isn't that an understatement? Have you looked up into the heavens lately? Huh? You know, it's almost like an afterthought. Oh, and by the way, he made the stars. If you want a glimpse of the grandeur of God, check out the stars. After my freshman year at St. Louis Christian College, I spent a month in Mexico as a missionary intern down there. And we were in a very high elevation, arid part of the country. And there was no light pollution. There was no light at all at night. I have never before seen and never since seen the heavens with just this brilliant, beautiful look. I'd, I'd brave the scorpions and go out at night in the darkness just to see the sky. Did it every night because it was the most majestic thing I have ever seen. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Isaiah 40, 26, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Do you realize the latest research on our galaxy, the Milky Way, indicates that it would take a spacecraft traveling at the speed of light, that's 186,000 miles per second, 200,000 light years to go from one side of the Milky Way to the other side of the Milky Way. And since one light year equals 6 trillion miles, you do the math. It's a, it's a number I can't even begin to grasp. And our average size galaxy is only one of what they estimate to be 500 billion galaxies in the universe. 500 billion. For some perspective, if you had 500 billion $1 bills, that's chump change for the government, I realize, and you counted each one of those bills, one bill per second, it would take you 15,844 years to count that stack of $1 bills. Each of those 500 billion galaxies has hundreds of billions of stars all made by the hand of our mighty God. And what's more, the Bible says he knows every star by name. Wow. Let's go back to the egg for a minute. That's not a trick. That's gravity. That's pure science there. By the way, I think science is awesome. I've always enjoyed science, and I don't find it at conflict with Scripture. I think it does a lot to point us in the right direction. So uh, I think we have a slow motion video here of the egg. If you noticed, 
right at the start, when the pan and the tube are knocked out from under, it hovers there for just a tiny split second and then drops straight into the cup because of gravity. Do you realize how precise our universe is? Just with regard to gravity, I want you to consider this. Not just our galaxy, but the whole universe. Pretend the whole universe had a ruler stretched out from one side of the uh, universe to the other side of the universe, and it's marked off in one-inch segments, just like our rulers are. And this ruler represents the measurement of gravity, the force of gravity. If you change the force of gravity by moving it just one inch either one way or the other, suddenly life would become impossible. The force change of gravity would be changed by over a billion times just by shifting it one inch either way. Do you realize the universe operates on a razor's edge? And that's not, that's just gravity. It doesn't touch everything else. That life here would just be literally impossible if that changed. It couldn't exist. If the moon were any farther away or any closer to the earth, life here would be impossible. If our sun were any farther away or any closer, life here on this world would not be possible. The universe operates on a razor's edge. How do we explain that? If it's all just random chance. But I believe there's a grand designer who put it all together with every piece and part just perfect. If there is no God, how do we explain the creative nature around us? One of my favorite bugs is the bombardier beetle. Anybody here familiar, familiar with the bombardier beetle? Oh, you're going to like this. The bombardier beetle is just absolutely one of God's most unique creations in the insect world. He, he has this ability, as you can see there, to spray this toxic, nauseous steam. There it's a, against a human finger, but imagine a hungry toad getting ready to have lunch, and then the bombardier beetle, let's go with this. Now, inside the bombardier beetle, there is a combustion chamber. There are two chambers that hold chemicals and two other chambers that hold enzymes, and these chemicals are explosive, and they come together in the, you can see in, this, in, in the picture there, in this chamber, and it heats up to 221 degrees, and then the bug lets go of the spray. But it's not a continuous spray. It sprays out at 100 times per second so that it doesn't overheat inside the chamber. I mean, how does something like that develop apart from a grand designer? We're talking, you saw the size of that bug. You know, about the size of a person's fingernail. And all of that is happening in it. Science cannot figure out how the bombardier beetle does this. Or how about the hagfish? <laughs> hagfish has no eyes, teeth, or backbone. Its skin fits like a very loose pair of pajamas. And when it is attacked, its only defense is slime. Between its head and tail, the hagfish has 70 to 200 slime glands, and when threatened, it exudes this sticky mucus. But here's the thing. The hagfish will typically release less than a teaspoonful of that gunk into the water, but once it's released in a half a second, it transforms and becomes a five-gallon bucket full of slime. Now, there was a group of um, slime fish on their way to South Korea, uh, in a truck, and this happened on an Oregon highway. The truck overturned, and this is just one of the cars that was damaged by the slime of the hagfish. In that, that that car's ruined. It's I mean, it's just ruined. Here's the mystery. Here's the mystery. The protein threads that give the slime cohesion are utterly amazing. 
Each is one one-hundredth the width of a human hair, but can stretch between four and six inches. And within the slime glands, each thread is coiled up like a ball of yarn into its own tiny cell. Now, what's that like, you say? <laughs> it's like stuffing a strand of Christmas lights 3,281 feet long into a shoebox without a single tangle or not. No one has been able to determine how the hagfish achieves such a miraculous miracle of packaging. But I'm telling you, the Creator does. He knows. Or consider the red cockaded woodpecker, which has four powerful toes on each leg so it can enable it to cling to the tree. Its primary predator is the rat snake. So when the woodpecker pecks out the hole for its nest, he, he also pecks out several holes down from the nest so that the sap will come out of the tree so the rat snake can't get any farther than where that bottom of the rung sap happens to be. The woodpecker drills up to 500 times per minute, striking the tree at eight times per second. The bird's beak hits the tree at a rate of 13 miles per hour, which would be the equivalent if you and I took off running at our fastest speed and just ran smack dab into the side of a tree. That's the speed at which it hits the tree. And yet, a woodpecker's head has special cushioning preventing brain damage. Now, how did that just happen randomly? <laughs> how many woodpeckers died of a bad concussion before they ever got it right? See, there is this grand designer who puts all this together. Or how about human hair? A strand appears so simple, and yet it's as strong as aluminum of the same size. And there are 5 million hair follicles on the body. The scalp alone contains 100,000. Individually, over a lifetime, each follicle will produce 26 feet of hair. Collectively, over a lifetime, the scalp will produce nearly 500 miles of hair. Now, granted, some scalps have taken a detour, may not get that 500 miles. <laughs> but the average remains astounding. Again, the Bible says God knows every hair on our head. How is something like this just random? Again, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 139, 14, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. I want you to see one more thing. It's about the puffer fish, but it's so much better to see it than for me to tell it. So just take a look at this little video and we're, we're almost done. Unfortunately, this small Japanese puffer fish is dull, almost to the point of invisibility. But to compensate, he is probably nature's greatest artist. To grab a female's attention, he creates something that almost defies belief. His only tools are his fins. In his head, a plan of mathematical perfection. He plows the sand, breaking it up into the finest of particles. 
These shells aren't just rubbish to be removed. He uses them to decorate the bridges of his construction. He can't rest for more than a moment, but must work 24 hours a day for a week, or the current will destroy his creation. A final tidy up, and his masterpiece is complete. does an animal construct something as complex and perfect as this. If this doesn't get him noticed, nothing will. If you can watch that in its intricate design, way far below the surface of the sea where none of us would ever see and design and believe that there is no grand designer. Um, I've got questions for how you arrive at that conclusion. I just think that there is a God who spoke all of this into existence. So I wouldn't agree with everything that Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, but I certainly agree with this. All I have seen teaches me to trust the creator for all I have not seen. Paul writes in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. We could go on and on and on. And that's what I want you to do. I just want to whet your appetite to study deeper. Here's my last question. If there is no God, what do we have left? What's left? We are nothing more than the arbitrary product of random chance. We are reduced to a collection of atomic particles that exist on a small planet in a vast solar system through which we are rapidly moving with no control, no direction, no purpose, and no destiny. We came from nothing, are headed nowhere, and will be nothing when we become food for the worms six feet under. Now, if you've been struggling with self-esteem, that's not going to help you feel a lot better about yourself. But it's true, it's true if there is no God. But if the God of the Bible exists, then he has designed us with purpose and meaning. We are not some random collection of cells, but the crown of his creation. So loved by him that he gave his only son to be our savior, to pay our debt of sin that we might have everlasting life. Because of him. We have worth and value. Because of him, we have direction and a destiny. Because of him, we have a reason for living and a hope in dying. 
Don't let your doubts get you down. The creator is still on his throne and he is in charge forever. If he provides for the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the flowers of the field and each star he knows by name, then he will take care of you. So I'm here to tell you this morning, let the doubts be resolved and you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because he is the eternal creator and we are his family. Do you know him this morning as Savior? If you've been wrestling with your doubts through these years, I'm hoping and praying that today will be the day you say, enough of my doubts have been answered. I want Jesus as my Savior. Let me pray and then... uh, our worship team will lead us in another song, and Dee and Tyson will both be down here to, uh, to take your confession when you're ready. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your love for us and for your blessings that cover our lives in ways we can't even begin to remember or to express. Father, I thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love and that you have created this world and this universe around us to point to you. And so, Lord, help us to see everything as it directs our attention to your wonderful heart, your wonderful creative mind, and your wonderful love for us. I pray if there's one here today, Lord, who does not know you because of their their doubts or concerns, that today you will help them be resolved to put Jesus first as Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.